we've been talking about uh, the perfect life of Jesus. Uh, today we're going to talk about his death. Uh, and uh, next week we're going to talk about his resurrection. Now you would expect this during Holy Week. You would expect these things because we often talk about what happened, the events of, uh, uh, of Easter or the crucifixion or Palm Sunday. Uh, sometimes we don't talk about why. And so what I've tried to do this year is talk a little bit about why, not go to the typical uh, scriptures that tell us what happened or try to prove that it happened, which is apologetics, uh, but rather why. What is its meaning to you? The me- what does Christ's life mean to you? The fact that he came and obeyed the law perfectly for us and as us in our place. Does it mean that you don't have to obey the law? Of course not. But what it does, it changes your heart so that performance is not what drives you. Fear is not what drives you. Listen carefully. But rather, love and gratitude become the motivating force. This is true Christianity. If you obey God because you're afraid of Him, or you obey God because you believe you're going to get something from Him, what will happen is your relationship will be stunted. It will not be healthy. Any more than a parent with their children or in your work, if all you're trying to do is get the next raise or the next vacation or the next promotion, your, your work will become wearisome to you. And so God has wanted a relationship of love. And so he's removed performance and he said, I will love you completely upon the work and life of Jesus. But then we have this other problem, the problem of sin. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You don't hear about it much because churches is almost taboo. Talk about sin because it's such a downer. And it is because we all sin. But uh, I've been reading this great book. Uh, it's taking me forever more to read it. But it's, a very, it's not an easy read. Uh, it's written by an Episcopalian a priest. Her name is uh, Fleming Rutledge. She is brilliant. And she's written this uh, really landmark book called The Crucifixion. And let me read to you uh, just a little portion. Listen carefully. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Sin is a category without meaning except with reference to God. Sin is without meaning except with reference to God. And a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip illustrates this in an endearing way. I don't know if you all know, who, how many of you know who Calvin and Hobbes are? Calvin is uh, the little boy, and he's got a stuffed animal that is only alive to him, kind of like Winnie the Pooh. But this, this little animal is a tiger, and his name is, is Hobbes. Uh, so <laughs> Calvin, by the way, pardon me, Calvin was named after John Calvin, the great theologian, and uh, Hobbes was named after Thomas Hobbes, the... Uh, rationalist. And so you, you get kind of the, the, the humor behind Calvin and Hobbes. And so he says, here's the, here's the scene. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes are shooting down a mountain uh, in the snow uh, on a sled. And of course, Calvin's in the front and Hobbes is in the back because he's the ma- imaginary friend, stuffed animal. And they're, they're having this dialogue. And what's so funny about it is because they're ch- he's a child, six years old, and he's hurtling down this this mountain uh, in snow on a sled, but he's having a theological discussion with his stuffed animal, Hobbes. Calvin says this, little boy says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. 
And the tiger says, you're worried about having been good? And he says, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? And Hobbes said, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. (laughs) You know, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your view of the world is, whether you're Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, uh, you know, believe in Martians. doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody struggles with this issue of right and wrong, good and bad. You know, we've gone through periods when, you know, we're very legalistic. This is right. This is wrong. This is right. And we've gone through times when we're very relativistic. In other words, do whatever's right for you. And we define what is right and wrong for us. So, you know, sin, you can define sin any way you want to, unless you do something against me. Then it becomes a sin and we want justice and we want the police and we want everything else. But we've entered into a time now where we're not in relativism anymore. We're in hyper, hyper legalism. Political correctness has created a hyperly legalistic environment in where everything is wrong defined by a certain group of people. Everything. And you cannot vary from that at all. Intolerance is at a level that has almost unknown in our, in our time, in our modern age. It, there's times in history when it's been that way before. So what I want to talk about this morning is the problem of sin and what the cross means in a maybe a little different way. So if you have your Bible or you've got your bulletin, it's, it's printed in there. It's from Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading these few verses here, starting in verse 5. And now hear the word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death so that by grace he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why... He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now go to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but 
He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. This is God's word. Okay, so what we're going to talk about this morning very quickly is the problem of sin, the human problem of sin. And sin's products, the products of sin, guilt uh, and shame. Then we're going to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, which is in this passage very clearer. Uh, Maybe you haven't noticed that before. And then finally, we'll talk about the faithful and merciful high priest, the human problem uh, with sin. Just like Calvin uh, and Hobbes in that little cartoon, uh, people struggle with right and wrong, with good and bad, with doing what is right. uh, How do you define wrong? uh, and, And what are the effects of that in our life? And we know that regardless of who you are, where you are, what your background is, or your religious affiliation, or your culture. Every human being has wrestled with this. We've tried to relativize it. In other words, redefine sin on the one hand, or we've elevated it to the point where everything is a sin. So you have both things going. You've got, you've got this confusion with respect to sin. And of course, the Bible is not silent. The Bible defines what sin is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's how it defines sin. And that's in the children's catechism. How do we define sin? It's going against God's law. And he doesn't have, you know, this Bible is not hundreds and hundreds of laws. There's just ten of them. And Jesus reduced them to two. He said, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will fulfill the rest of them. And so the law, as it's defined for Christians, and actually for many other people, it's interesting how the laws that are in Scripture are almost universally held by all cultures and all religions. It's not that Christianity is utterly unique, or even Judaism utterly unique in that. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to talk for a moment about this problem. Now, he does it in many other places in Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible. I love it. I've preached through it here at Christ the King many years ago. And uh, if I was stuck on a desert island, that's the one I would want. Okay? I have the rest of the Bible memorized, but Hebrews... (laughs) That's funny. All right. Look at verse 5 and 8 and verse 11 and 14. All through this psalm, he punctuates down at the end at 16, 17. It's not to angels that he subjected the world to come. And then he quotes Psalm 8. Then in verse 11, he says, I'm not, he's not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, to become like us, take on flesh, to clothe himself in flesh. Look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he partook the same. 16 and 17. It's not to angels, but the offspring of Abraham. Now, he's not talking about 
the, the Hebrew people per se. He's talking about anyone, and he, he explains this later, that anyone that is of the faith of Abraham, we also are the seed of Abraham. We being Gentiles as well as those that are Hebrews. Since the children have flesh and blood, he took the same, not to angels, but the children of Abraham. Therefore, he is made like us, listen, in every respect. So we know that Jesus came to the earth to save human beings, and the way he saves us is by becoming one of us. He is not ashamed, listen carefully, not ashamed to call us brothers. He's using a euphemism for people, humanity. Listen to what Dr. Dan DeWitt said. I found this the other day and I just, it, I was reading something, I was reading psychology today, but this is a Christian author. They all say the same thing, by the way. Listen. Guilt and shame, guilt and shame are conceived in rebellion. In other words, sin gave birth to guilt and shame. Do you remember the narrative in the book of Genesis? When they eat the fruit, what happens? Their eyes are opened. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. They knew they were guilty for breaking God's law. They became ashamed. And what was the next thing they did? They tried to cover their nakedness and they hid. Keep those things in mind. They're very important. Guilt and shame are conceived in rebellion. To live outside of Eden is to be intimately acquainted with them. We know them well, far better than we wish. We would love to part with them, but they won't leave us alone. Though guilt and shame are twins, born in the garden, only moments apart, they are not identical. Guilt... Listen to this. This is crucial. Guilt is usually tied to an event. I did something bad. Shame is tied to the person. I am bad. Guilt, I did something bad. Shame, I am bad. Guilt is the wound, shame is the scar. Guilt is isolated to the individual, shame, listen, shame is contagious. When you violate God's law, you feel guilt, but that emotion is quickly, nearly simultaneously joined with shame. Guilt says, you did something wrong. Shame says you need to hide. You did something wrong. Shame says you need to hide. God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But what happened? They did not die. In fact, everybody from then on for quite a few chapters They live long time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Methuselah was 969 years. They live a long time. Now whether that's literal or figurative, I don't know, but the reality of it is he's making a point. He's saying they live a long time. So it took a long time for death 
to take its toll. God was gracious to them. He, he waited. Not only did He wait, but He did something about their guilt and their shame. They could not cover their sin, so what happened? He covered it. He took two animals and He killed them and He gave them their skins. Now, we don't want to make too much of that. It's important, but we don't want to make more of it than it is right at this point in Scripture. There was a sacrifice, yes, and all that, but we don't want to jump too far ahead. That comes later in the Bible. But what we do know from Genesis 3 is they couldn't cover their sin with their fig leaves and their hiding. God had to do it. And the rest of the Bible, my friends, as we talked about in our theology class this morning, the whole balance of the Bible is about that. It is about God covering the sin or making atonement. Sin gave birth to guilt, shame, and powerlessness. You see, that's the message of the fig leaves and hiding. They were powerless to save themselves. They were, uh, what, what Augustine said, they were posse non pecare. They, it's not possible for them no longer to live with sin. Not possible not to sin. Non posse non pecare. Not possible not to sin anymore. Sin became part of them. Now, that's the problem of sin. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a humanist or a Buddhist or Hindu, Muslim. makes no difference. It doesn't matter. You could be an atheist. And atheists find ways to try to assuage their wrongdoing. Everyone does it. We are all terribly aware of our guilt and our shame. Uh, I got arrested. Everything went dead silent there. I got arrested in high school. I was very bad in high school. I created a lot of problems for myself and for my parents, and I got arrested. And uh, my birthday's in January, and I'll be happy to give you the dates. You can buy me presents. Um, But... uh, Anyway, the policeman uh, that arrested us, a whole group of us got arrested, and, and uh, he got confused with the dates because I'm in January and I was 16. And he thought I was 17. He takes me and puts me in jail with the other guys, and so we're all in jail. Then he realized that, uh, that I was in jail illegally, that I should have been taken to the juvenile detention center. And so uh, uh, by this time, my parents had found out, and, and so, you know, they contact my parents, and my dad says, no. So where's my dad? There he is, see? He, you remember that? He's been trying to forget it for the last uh, 50 years. My dad says, leave him there. I'll come get him in the morning. Thank you, dad. So I stayed in jail, and the next morning they come, and my dad's there, and, you know, and I, what do you think I felt? I was guilty of a, of a crime. I had actually committed a crime. I won't tell you what it is. Uh, along with some other people. but So I'm in jail. My dad comes to me. I was guilty, but what do you think I, I was feeling? Well, not quite yet. <laughs> I fear, yes, but not for the right reason. I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, man, I'm so guilty. I did this. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. My dad comes. We start filling out the forms to release me. And I'm sitting there with a, a policeman, and he's saying, you know, all right, what's his name? And you know, he gives my name, his first name, Charles, last name. And my dad says, well, after tonight, I don't know if he's going to have a last name. I never forgot that. 
even though I hadn't quite sobered up yet. And the shame set in. And where did the shame go? It spilled over to who? My dad and my mom and my family and my... You know, it just kaboom, 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 kaboom. Shame is contagious. Guilt, you know, it's you. But shame... And if you come from a traditional culture where family is everything, and I do, I come from a Middle Eastern family, and so, you know, it's very deeply ingrained. You'd want to shame your family. And I used to tell my boys when they would do something wrong, I would say, Isaacs don't do this. This is not what our clan does, even though I had a lot of room to talk, right? Uh, So you get the idea. Shame is a result of guilt, but they go together. And you pick your poison. You pick your thing. And we know we're guilty. And a lot of times we're okay. We, we know what, as Christians, we know what to do about our guilt. You confess your sin and all of that. But what about the shame that seems to just nag and nag and nag? Real quickly, here we go. Listen to this. Because Jesus' sacrifice, His perfect life did something amazing for us by removing performance as the motivation. But His sacrifice on the cross does something else entirely, but they go together. His perfect obedience to die for those He loved. It removes three things. Let me give them to you real quickly. And if you don't remember these, you should write these down. These are at the heart of our faith, folks. They are at the very heart. He removes the penalty for sin. He removes the powerlessness that is associated with sin or the power of sin. The penalty and the power. And the last thing he does is he removes the very presence of sin. He doesn't do that right away. That's why we talk about things like the already, not yet. We still live in a world where sin is a constant presence. Not only in our life, but in the life of people around us. Look at verse 9, the the last part of verse 9. So by the grace of God... He might taste death for everyone. The penalty for sin in the garden was death. And so that specter of death hung over us till this day. We all die. The statistics are one for one. Every human dies. But what He does is He comes and He tastes death for everyone so that He can promise a resurrection a life that is not subject to death. Okay? Look at verse 17. This is at the end. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and to make propitiation for our sins. Now, you know, I don't like to use big words, propitiation, but propitiation is one of those words... You need to learn. Don't be afraid of it. Both in Greek and in Hebrew, the word propitiation uh, means atonement. It means to satisfy. It means to take away. It means to turn aside the judgment, the penalty, to cover the penalty. And I think most of you know, any, any of you that are familiar with your Bible, and even outside the Bible, they're in cultures that do not believe in Christianity, still observe these things. The motifs associated with 
propitiation or atonement are these. The scapegoats. You know, in the book of uh, the, the Old Testament, Leviticus, um, they were to take on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the, the word for uh, atonement, uh, propitiation in the Old Testament is kafar. And so uh, Yom Kippur is a, a form of that, Yom being day, day of kafar, day of atonement, day of Kippur. Yom Kippur. And on that day, they took two goats. And the two goats, you know, most of you know the story, they bring these two goats, they were to be without blemish. On one goat, they put him to the side because they're going, they're going to kill this goat and put his blood on the altar. And that goat is for the sins of the people, right? To cover their sins. Then there's a second goat. You all know what happened to the second goat? The high priest laid his hands on the head of the second goat and he spends time there confessing all the sins. I don't know how long it took him, but... You know, he, pre- he confessed the sins of the people on the head of the goat. And then they had a designated person who would take the goat and lead it out into the wilderness and let it go. And that was symbolic. The first goat was to cover sin. The second goat was to take it away, get it away from the people. So propitiation, pro is for. But you also see in some translation of the Bible, they translated expiation. These are words that you shouldn't be afraid of. Expiation, what does exit mean? Take it out. So it was to cover and take it away. And so that's what happened with the goats. There was also the blood of the lamb on Passover. You all know the story. They put the blood so that the angel of death would pass over the home. And in fact, all of the blood sacrifices were for this purpose. To propitiate, to cover, or expiate, to take away sin, to get it off of us. You know, if, if you're a husband or, or if you're a guy and you have a girlfriend and you do something wrong, you forget an important date or you, you, know, you didn't pick up the dog poop in the backyard or whatever it is. What, what, is, what does the wife do? She gets mad. She's not happy. Don't tell me that you forgive, ladies, because I know you don't. I have personal experience. We're supposed to do things, right? Or we make a mistake. Or it could be something really bad, but whatever. And so a guy will go out and he will get a bouquet of flowers or a box of chocolate or, you know, a triple macchiato or something or other from Starbucks. And he brings it home to do what? To propitiate. (laughs) Please accept this sacrifice. (laughs) You know, please accept me. Again, I've made a big mistake. Here, eat this chocolate. (laughs) I mean, we do all kinds of that. We do that in work. We do that in our relationships. We do it in every kind of thing. We try to make up for the wrong we've done. Adam and Eve did it with the leaves and the, you know, they tried to make up. They tried to hide. Every human being does this. I don't care what culture you're from. It doesn't matter what race or ethnicity. It doesn't matter what your religious background. We all try to do that. We know it. Down in our bones, it's, it's innate. We know exactly what it is. Even our shorter catechism, I, I love the catechism. You should be teaching your kids the catechism because it's wonderful. Christ's humiliation. 
consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death on the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Christ's humiliation was just in being born and coming and living in this world and dying, taking into himself the wrath of God, tasting death for everyone and making propitiation for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross and a a big part of me, and I've told you this before, a big part of me wishes that Protestants had not given up on the crucifix. I know why we did it theologically and I know all the history and so do many of you. But there's something about it of seeing the image of Jesus on a cross with the nails the crucifix itself that is never to leave our minds, never to be expunged. I know He's risen from the dead. I know He is victorious. But Dr. Rutledge in her book about the crucifixion says that the the center of Christianity is not the resurrection. It is the cross of Christ. So did John Stott So did almost every great scholar that I know. The cross of Christ is the crux cross of our faith. And we have to understand what happened there. The penalty for our sins was removed once and for all. Do you know that God, when He looks at you now, you could sin, you could shake your fist in His face and say, Watch this. And do something awful. And like any good parent, he will sit there and he'll wait. He'll watch you do it. And he'll go, okay, watch this. And he will reach out and embrace you with such iron cords of love that I don't know anybody that's ever escaped them. And he will draw you in close. And that's what is called discipline. And chastisement doesn't mean you're going to go get in a car wreck. What it means is he's going to draw you in and love you more. And if it takes a little pat on the behind to get you straightened out, he'll do it. But he doesn't do what all the other gods in the world do and hold their nose and get back and say, okay, now do something for me to make up for your sin. I want to to see a sacrifice. I want to see something. He's not waiting for that. What could we possibly do? The Apostle Paul said this, you all know the Scripture, God sent Jesus to be a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. In other words, we believe this. This is the bottom line of our Christianity. We believe Jesus died for us. To show God's righteousness because of His divine patience. He had passed over former sins. In other words, when God looks down on humanity 
and he sees me in jail and my family's shamed and I'm doing all my stuff. He is being patient. He's not going to kill me for that. He is waiting, waiting, waiting because he saw something back in the past. He knows my future is secure. He's made my future secure. He doesn't hold my sin against me. The forgiveness is past, present, future. One, one guy, Scott Sauls, one of our pastors in Nashville said, he has taken our judgment, future judgment, and moved it to the past, to the cross. All the judgment that was due you and I moved it to the past to show God's righteousness because of His divine patience. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God now. We've obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. He took that thing away. He covered that thing and made us friends again. And in the next chapter, in chapter 6, Paul leads with this question. You all have heard it. Shall we sin, therefore, that grace may abound? Should we presume on it? What does he say? Ume. He says in Greek, ume. No, never, never, under no circumstances. Just two little words, but it's a double negative. And he's saying, never. No. You don't sin that grace may abound. How can you that are dead to sin, right? You were on the cross. How are you dead Why would you live any longer in that? He's motivating us to love and obey Him. So, He deals with the penalty. And let me tell you, Christianity, if you don't get this, I'm going to be honest with you folks, Christianity is a horrible religion. It's a terrible religion. If Jesus did not die for your sins and pay the penalty for all of your sins, past, present, and future, It is a horrible religion because Christianity will just drive you nuts. You will be schizophrenic. You'll be thinking, well, am I saved? Am I not saved? Does He love me? Does He not love me? Has He forgiven me? Has He not forgiven me? And we will swing to one end of the pendulum or the other. We'll we'll, we'll not believe the gospel and we'll try to always be doing better and doing better because then maybe, then maybe He'll accept me. Or, we go to the other side of the pendulum and we say, ah, he's going to forgive me. Ah, you know, Chuck says he, he loves me no matter what, so I can, I can just presume on his grace and I can get away with anything. If you heard me say that, something's wrong with you. Not me. No, that is not with you. You don't presume on God's grace, but presuming on his grace and being really legalistic, same thing. Just different clothes, right? Same thing. You're still away from God. You're still not there. But if you understand grace, it is going to humble you down to the ground. You're going to say, i got to have Him. i got to have Jesus. Every day of my life, on my best day, on my worst day, I need Him. We're not going to talk about the presence of sin until next week. But the second one is the power. Remember, penalty, power, 
and presence. Very quickly, look at verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he partook of the same, so that through death, now look very carefully, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. The Bible has these motifs about the atonement, the penalty part, you know, the lamb, the scapegoats, the blood sacrifices, the blood on the door during Passover, all of that. But slavery and oppression and fear also have motifs, and you know these, the Exodus. The whole story of the Exodus is a deliverance motif that is carried out throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, because as a child, listen to this, as a baby, Jesus had to flee the promised land and go into Egypt. And Matthew knew, and Matthew said this, out of Egypt have I called my son. And that's just what he said about the nation of Israel. Out of Egypt I have called my, my son. So Jesus recapitulates, if you will, he replays the exodus Deliverance from bondage, another motif. Slavery, ransom, being bought in the marketplace. You go into the marketplace, you see a slave, and you say, I'm going to free this slave. And you buy the slave. You pay the price to buy the slave. You redeem something. If any of you have been to a pawn shop, and you took your stuff, and then you want your stuff back, you go and you take your little coupon, and you go redeem your stuff back. Okay? Oppression, fear, victory. Over enemies. This was the, one of the themes uh, uh, in, in the uh, patriarchal period. Christus victor. The victory of Christ over all the evil forces. Safety, security, the land. All of the stuff about the land of Israel. All that was because that was to be a place of security. Now it's the whole earth. But then it was a certain place of land. Milk and honey, I'm going to take you to a place of milk and honey where you can exist and live in peace and prosperity. And of course, Paul says, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Why would we who are dead to sin live any longer in that? So he's taken away the power. Jesus bore the penalty for our sin, but he also does something. And St. Augustine captures this in his great formulas. We've talked about it forever in theology class. Adam and Eve were created, posse non pecare, possible not to sin. They had free will, but their will was under a constraint. God had said, don't eat from this tree. And they broke that law, and in so doing, they lost their freedom. And human beings have been in slavery ever since. Enslaved to our passions. That's why when we sin now, we go, gosh, I just couldn't help it. I don't know what's wrong with me. Why? You know, guilt. And then shame. Oh, I hope nobody finds out. Have you ever seen on the news when they arrest some, some prominent person? They don't even have to arrest a prominent person. What do they do? They've got the handcuffs on and they're going into the court. What do they do? The perp walk. Right? What does the perp walk look like? They're like this. They don't want their face on camera as if anybody cares. We know what you look like. But we're ashamed of the guilt we have incurred. 
Jesus took away that power. Jesus broke the power of Satan. So we were created, Adam and Eve were created, but it was possible for them not to sin. They could have said to Satan, no, we don't want tree of knowledge of good and evil. We want tree of life. And therefore, thanks but no thanks. Please leave our garden. And the serpent would have had to leave, right? Because they were made stewards of the garden. Okay. When they sinned, St. Augustine, genius, formula, non posse non pecore, not possible not to sin. He doesn't say that everything you do is sinful. He's just saying that now we are powerless. We have inability to resist sin. Sin is really part and parcel of everything we do. But what the Apostle Paul said and what this writer to Hebrews said and what so much of the rest of the Bible is, when God brought the children out of Israel, He told them, you are now free. Serve me. I will be your God. You will be my people. I brought you out, Exodus 19, I brought you out on eagle's wings. I adopted you. I freed you. I brought you to this land. Chapter 20 of Exodus. Now therefore, because I've done this, because I've freed you, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. You shall not create a graven image. You shall keep the Sabbath day. You'll honor your father and mother. You will not steal. You will not commit adultery. You will not commit murder. You will not covet. You see? Because I've done this, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? Woman, has no one accused you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he says next words out of his mouth. Neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. If he had turned it around and said, go and sin no more and then I'll accept you, you lose Christianity. You lose Jesus. You, you, don't have any, you don't have a religion. You just have everything else. Go earn it. But he broke the power of sin, folks, in our lives. We can say no to sin and we can do it, the Apostle Paul says, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me leave you with this because this is where it really matters as we face sin. John Stott, in his book on the cross, it's, in fact, it's entitled The Cross of Christ. Amazing book. Almost, it's as good as this one. I could never myself believe in God. This is Stott. At the end of the book, he's talking about the cross. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on a cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time... 
I have to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on a cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. He laid aside His immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. One, our suffering becomes more manageable because of His suffering. There's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, over it we boldly stamp another mark. The cross of Christ, which symbolizes our human suffering. All He's asking us to do is trust Him. Trust Him. Will you do it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, as we enter this great week, this holy week, where we remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus and at the end the great victory of Christ, Christus Victor, who conquered death, hell, and the grave for us, who bore our sins, the Passover lamb who took away the sins of the world, the scapegoat who carried our sins out into the wilderness, As we remember him, Father, we lay our lives before you. We ask you, please forgive us, help us, strengthen us by your spirit in our own battles with sin and guilt and shame that plague us every day of our lives. You became the guilty one for us. You became the one who was not ashamed but became shamed for us so that we could deal with our shame. Please help us. Strengthen us, we pray. And as we come to your holy table and partake of your body and blood for us, we ask that in that body and blood you would strengthen us to do what is right in your sight, to be lights to the world, a world that is in darkness. Amen.